for the record, this side totally won that, just so you know. You guys should practice up this week. We'll try it again. Second place is nothing to be ashamed of. We call it first loser. <laughs> Thrilled you're here. Excited to dig into 2 Peter again today. You can turn there if you'd like. It's page 957 in the Pew Bible in front of you. We'll be reading out of the ESV today and really encouraged by these verses, really looking forward to digging into them together. I ran into two problems, though, two frustrations, if you will. Uh, first of all, there's no way that we'll be able to get to the depths of all the meaning here in only 40 minutes. It's going to take more than that. It's going to take your follow-up to keep searching and studying and learning. And of course, we always wish we could put a neat bow on it today and wrap it up, but no, this is so deep, it's going to require additional study. Secondly, I just so wish, so wish that we could transfer over to you all the, the passion of digging and obeying these words. Some of you are doing this. Some of you are leading the way and digging into the Word of God, obeying what He has laid out for you. But we just so wish that we could impart the, the true eye-opening understanding of the abundant, joyful life that God has waiting for each one of us. But that's the job of the Holy Spirit. So we'll be praying that the Lord will continue to open the eyes of our hearts, continue to draw us in, continue to help us to realize that abundant, peaceful, joyful life is waiting for us. And if we could put aside the cares and the concerns of the world, if we could get past those sinful enticements that bog us down, God has incredible joy laid out for us. So let's read these, this passage, and then we'll pray and ask the Lord to really uh, touch our hearts this morning. 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Father, we turn to you desperate for you to work in our hearts, desperate for you to, uh, as Philippians 1 says, give us that will and the ability to do your will, uh, to work in us both to will and to do for your good pleasure. And so, Lord, we ask that you would, uh, through the speaking and the hearing and the doing of this passage, that you'd be pleased and honored with our response, our willingness to say, I will change for you, Almighty God. I will obey. I will abide. We thank you for our Lord Jesus. We celebrate him. We remember him. He's the reason we're here. In Jesus' name, amen. One commentator said this is the most densely packed two verses in much of Scripture. And so because of that, we had a couple of options. We could really focus in and digging deep into the interpretation, but that wouldn't leave as much time for the second part. What's the second part? The application. How does this change our life? How do we apply this? And so instead, I wanted to summarize the interpretation and then invite you to go to the YouTube link. You can see it there in your notes. That link does a tremendous job of breaking down 
all of the prepositional phrases and really helping make clear the interpretation that I'm going to share with you this morning. It's about nine minutes, but if you go through that, you can see it. You can follow the track of the different phrases and the, the different ways that uh, the Holy Spirit put these words together for our benefit. But instead of digging into that now, I'll leave that to you. I'm going to share with you the interpretation of what these verses are referring to. And so you can see some blanks on your notes. If you saw me this morning, I handed you a pen if you didn't already have one. That's for this time. So I'd really encourage you to write down these different words so that you can then have a very summary interpretation of some of the most densely packed verses in all Scripture. 2 Peter 1, 3-4 gives the overarching message that God gives godliness. God gives godliness. He's going to impart godly, holy, sanctified living into our lives if we let him. And so God gives holiness and godliness. He does this through knowledge and our certain calling. He does this through knowledge and our certain calling. Now, the verse says knowledge of our calling, and that's definitely true. But that calling stands on its own. You heard Mike do a fantastic job last week of sharing that really 2 Peter 1, verses 1 through 11 is going to describe this unbelievable, certain, guaranteed calling. God the Father chose you. He invited you to be his child. He paid the price for you to be his child. And he's drawing you to receive his son as your savior. And then once you know him as savior, he's drawing you to live for him and to draw deeper, to draw closer, as we sang this morning. Closer and closer. So he gives us godliness through knowledge and our certain calling. So what does he do to do this? Well, he uses, he uses power. He uses his power. And he guarantees this work by his promises. By his promises. So God gives godliness through knowledge and our certain calling. He uses his power and guarantees this work by his promises. And then the result, this gives us enormous responsibility. This gives us enormous responsibility to accept his godliness, to accept, to receive his godliness. God does the work in your life and in my life, but our God is not a bully. He will not force himself on you. And if you've yet to receive the Lord as your Savior, he's eager for you to do that today. But he's not going to force himself on you. If you know him as your Savior, he is eager to lead you in deeper godliness. But he will not use a baseball bat. He will not demand. He will draw. He will invite for some weird reason, he's given you the ability to quench the Spirit of God's work in your life. 
I don't get that. I guess if we allow him to work, maybe that shows our love for him. Maybe that gives us opportunity to demonstrate love and dedication to him. For whatever reason, he's not going to force you, my friends. But he's going to invite you. He's going to draw you. And he's going to do all the work, as Proverbs 3 says, to make the path straight so that as you step, step, step in faith, he's right there to lead you and guide you and show you the way. Take my yoke upon you, Jesus said. He wants you next to him on this path. He's going to do the heavy lifting, but we have to be willing to walk the path with him. And if we're honest in my life, you'd be able to point out places in my life where I've been unwilling to follow him. There are places in your life where you're unwilling to yield. He's got deeper. He's got richer. He's got more abundant joy for us. Let's respond. Let's say, yes, Lord. So God gives godliness. He does this through knowledge and our certain calling. He uses his power and guarantees this calling by his promises. This gives us enormous, what? Responsibility. Responsibility to accept his godliness. So that's a summary of the interpretation of these two verses. Let's dig into each of these a little bit more because this power is not any power. This is preeminent power. This is power beyond any other power that exists. This is omnipotent, all-powerful. We can see a taste of this in Job 26. And if you want to know the type of power that God is using to draw you to godliness, this is the taste, this is the taste of that kind of power. I say taste because we're going to learn that the power will intensify as we study it. Follow and see if you can see those intensities grow. Verse 7, he stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the waters in his thick clouds, and the cloud is not split open under them. He covers the face of the full moon and spreads over it his cloud. He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness, the pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. By his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him? But the thunder of his power, who can understand? You ever wonder why the earth hangs in outer space right where it does? God's power. You ever wonder how it's kept the exact right distance from the sun so that we don't freeze to death versus burn up? God's power. You think of the amazing creation around us. And how does Job describe this power? These are the outskirts of his ways. These are the tidbits of how powerful he really is. These are the whispers of what he is truly able to accomplish. Are you getting a taste of this amazing power? It deepens. Look at Isaiah 40. Isaiah is going to make it clear that, oh man, our God is all-powerful. Isaiah 40 verses 9. Go up to a high mountain 
O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. As if to say, take a look. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Go down to verse 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. God is all-powerful. He is the preeminent authority and power. Look at 1 Chronicles 29, 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Psalm 8 continues this theme. It says, when I consider your heavens, the, the work of your fingers, keep that in mind, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? All this power Psalm 8 describes. And how, what type of work does Psalm 8 describe? Did you catch that? It's the work of his fingers. That's how simple creation was for our omnipotent God. Eh, boop. Amazing power. And so if this unbelievable universe is the work of his fingers, what does Isaiah 53 says is the next level of his power? Turn there, Isaiah 53. Who has believed our report? I'll let you get there. Isaiah 53 never forget when uh, Dr. Jack Fish taught me this distinction between the work of his fingers and what Isaiah 53 says about the next level of power. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Some of the sweetest Old Testament descriptions of our salvation. Jesus Christ taking every bit of punishment for every sin on himself 
so that we can be cleansed. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was crushed for our sins. The work of salvation. The work of creation is the work of his what? Fingers. The work of salvation is the work of his arm. You think think creation is powerful. Take a look at salvation. It's amazing. It's no wonder that Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of God, for it is the power of salvation to to everyone who would believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You know what I love about this? This is where you come into the picture, isn't it? You have been saved with this indescribable power. God has used the power of his arm to take you from spiritual death to spiritual life. And if you've yet to receive that, today's the day. And if you have received that, today's the day to walk deeper in that. The power of God through his mighty arm has been unleashed and let loose for your benefit and for your sake. Unbelievable power. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, and 1 Corinthians 2, 2 through 5. Circle those, because that means you get to look those up on your own later. Dig into those verses. Realize that this power of God is unbelievable. It's immense. It's preeminent. It's all-powerful. Now, I love 1 Corinthians 15, because the powerful work of God's arm through salvation is described with an exclamation point in his resurrection. As Mike would say, God wrote the check for your salvation when Christ died on the cross. When was the check cashed? When Christ raised from the dead. The resurrection is the exclamation point of power on the work of salvation. And circle 1 Corinthians 15, because you can read that entire chapter and realize that without the resurrection, there's no salvation. Without the resurrection, the powerful work is incomplete. The resurrection is the exclamation point of God's powerful work of salvation. And I know how strong death is in this world. I know how strong the the enemy is in this world. And so when I get to 1 Corinthians 15 and I get to verse 54, I get really excited because it compares the power of death and sin and pain to the power of this Lord that we're serving. Verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where's your victory? O death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This almighty power of God has been unleashed in your life through salvation, exclamated with the resurrection of almighty Jesus Christ. And what's amazing to me is then you go over to Romans 8, 1 and 11, and you're going to see this power come full circle. Turn there with me. It's definitely worth looking at here. Romans 8, 1 through 11. Amazing verses that are going to put the very clear connection 
of the mighty power of God working in your life. Verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Underline that. Walk according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Do you realize what this means? The preeminent all power of God is living where? In you. In you. Eager for you to say, guide me, powerful spirit. Lead me. I live for you, God. You have the all-powerful, mighty God living in you if you know Christ is your Savior. So why do we act like we're wallowing around with the turkeys when through His Spirit He wants us soaring like eagles? Why do we do it? It's time to tap in. It's time to yield. It's time to avail ourselves of this unbelievable power. That's what 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4 is all about. His divine power, are you sensing it now? Living in you, right with you all the time. His divine power has given us all things for life and godliness. Unbelievable power. That's the power you have. That's the power in you if you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior. So allow the Holy Spirit to work. Now, he puts the seal or guarantee on this with what? How do we know? How do we know the power of God is with us? How do we know the power of God is going to stay with us? You ever have those thoughts? We sang a psalm of David. What was he asking? Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Do you remember singing that? Straight out of Scripture. Old Testament followers of God had a different relationship with the Spirit of God. You as a follower of Christ have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God and he promises never to leave you. His promises give the assurance that this isn't going to change. That you're always going to have this power available to you. Now God's promises are a gold mine of assurance. And if you haven't done a study of the promises of God, It'd be wonderful. It'd be really helpful in those times of doubts. So turn to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 is one of the action-packed chapters of God's promises. 
And so there's a short clip I'll show you while you're seeing it and listening to it. Understand what's going on here. You search out the promises of God and then you apply those promises and you define yourself by what those promises tell us. When we struggle with doubt, when we struggle with uncertainty, when we struggle to believe that we have all that it takes to live for God, we go back to God's promises and we apply those to our lives. Take a watch, follow along in Ephesians 1 as she points out these precious promises. Who am I that the highest king would welcome me? I was lost, but he brought me So you search the promises of God and it comes back and realizes that, yes, I'm chosen, I'm drawn, I'm saved, I am a child of God. And that emboldens us and that empowers us to live out this amazing calling that he's given us. When's the last time you looked at those promises? Take a look at Ephesians 1 on your own. Like she did, underline, write out those precious promises of God. And you'll see again that you are secure in his love. And then I, I need to correct something. Instead of Philippians 1.13, 
Change it to Philippians 2.13. My fault. Philippians 2.13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Philippians 2.13. A promise that you can take to the bank. He will do this work. Other scripture. He who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. God's promises make it certain. As we pursue following him, it's done. The victory is won. Let's get excited and secure in those precious promises. Verse 4 reminds us, which he granted to us by his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. These precious promises seal the deal, my friends. Let's learn them. Let's seek them. And so this leads us to this personal response, this personal practice, this responsibility that I talked about. Because when you go back, you have been given what things for life and godliness? All things for life and godliness. The work has been done for you to be partakers in God's divine nature. Now, this is not saying that you will become God. What is God's divine nature explained here? This is his holiness. This is his separation from sin. This is his moral purity in character. You have what things for that? All things. Do you want to hear the most amazing reality? You have all that it's needed to live a perfect life in Christ. Will you do that? Will I do that? Chances are no. Chances are I will not fully avail myself to the sanctification, the perfection, the holiness that God has provided for you. Take a look, if you will, at, at uh, and I'm jumping a little, but to jump with me. Take a look at Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. This was an eye-opening, jaw-dropping woe moment for me years ago when someone first taught me the reality of where we're at. Romans chapter 6, verse 15, makes it crystal clear. In light of the work that God has accomplished, verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Verse 18, having been set Free from sin. But Keith, I have, KT, I have this sin nature. No, the sin nature is dead. The sin nature is dead. Second Corinthians remind us, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You are free from sin. You have no obligation, no slavery, no need to sin anymore. You are a slave to righteousness, not a slave to sin. So why do I sin? 
Anyone know the answer? Because I want to. Because I choose to. Because in my frailty, I say I'd rather have the pleasures of this short-lived sin than the abundant life of the Lord Jesus Christ. By God's grace, he forgives us, but let's face it, we choose to sin. He doesn't want that anymore for you. He wants you to choose the righteousness that he's imputed to you. We sin because we choose to. How do I know that? Because his divine power has given us what things? All things for life and godliness. You have everything that it takes to live a holy, sanctified life for Almighty God. So what's stopping us? My own desires. Lay them aside, brothers and sisters. Today's the day where we realize that it is time to walk with Jesus, not just in name, not just in position. When we're saved, we are positionally made holy, but in practice, in regular steps. I like 2 Peter 1 one, right? Where Peter sets the tone for this. He says, Peter, and how does he describe himself? A bondservant of Jesus Christ. This is not just some casual, oh, sure, God, when I feel like it. We are slaves of Almighty God. We are bondservants of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is time for us to walk in obedience to this calling. It's amazing. Let's look at the rest of 2 Corinthians 5.17. 2 Corinthians 5.17 has more nuggets of of gold here for us. You heard the first verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation just means to change. He's changed us to himself. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling or changing the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of change, of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Positionally, you are God's righteousness. Practically, let's act that out. Practically, let's accept that change that he's eager for us to have. He's given you all things that pertain to life and godliness. And if you go back to page one, this gives us enormous responsibility to simply accept his godliness to determine and steadfastly follow after. Now, what's amazing here is you bring in knowledge, right? Knowledge was a key component. Now, I'm not always a big fan of knowledge. Growing up in a college town, I don't even know how many colleges we have. There's a lot. In five, thank you, Tom, VP of admissions, appreciate that research. In a town of five colleges, you could probably imagine that there's a lot of knowledge floating around. And what does knowledge do on its own? It puffs up, right? It puffs up. And you and I have seen a lot of puffed up knowledge, but love edifies. Love edifies. 
I would say we're swarmed with knowledge. There's an incredible amount of useless knowledge. I was teasing one of my friends that I was going to bring out my all-star trivia man, Luke. If I was going to have to go to a Trivial Pursuit tournament, I would bring Luke. Because if he doesn't know the useless information, he's so confident everyone would believe he's right. But the reality is that there's some fun, useless knowledge. But as Christians, we know that all the knowledge packed into here, unless it makes the journey down to the heart, is puffed up. And so don't misunderstand that when God says he has this unbelievable life for you through knowledge, it's through studying like crazy, but then applying God's holy word. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And then look at John 15, because this is where that knowledge becomes life-changing. John 15, 7, Jesus says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Knowledge without closeness, fellowship with the Lord Jesus, is ineffective. But when we take Jesus Christ up on his offer to walk with him, to remain in him, to practice his presence, to stay close to him, then when we study his words like faithful Bereans, then we have the powerful knowledge that can transform and continue to help us on this path of godliness. See the difference there in the knowledge? Make note of that. Knowledge is extremely valuable, but it must have the connection and relationship to Jesus Christ to really make it fruitful. And then finally, one of the last ingredients, but essential, go to Galatians 5. You know this from the, the fruits of the Spirit. But if we back up just a couple of verses to 16, we see the dramatic reality of where we're at in all this. The dramatic reality of where we're at in all this Galatians 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now this is a big concept. So I searched the world for the right illustration. Theological journals and commentaries. And I think I discovered the illustration that we need this morning. Show us gentlemen. It's Mr. Incredible. On your right, left, on your left, you have Mr. Incredible at his desk. 
doing his paper pushing work. Do you remember that part of the movie? Yeah. Now, this isn't him. Mr. Incredible had been given superpowers, right? And yet he's sitting at his desk. He's gotten chubby. He's gotten lazy. He's lost acting out who he really is. And so finally the light goes on. Are you getting this illustration? You have superpowers. You have the superpower. You have the Holy Spirit of God living in you. But too many times I'm sitting at my desk, chubby, lazy, not doing the work for whatever reason. Finally, it clues in again. And so as you can see in this next clip, now he starts to realize, oh yeah, I've got superpowers. Ready, guys? And so he starts to be a better father. He starts to use his powers as he shapes his young kids' lives, and he, he trims down, right? What's the point? He starts using the power in him to fulfill who he really is. And he doesn't just accept it as done, right? He starts pumping trains. He starts working it. He starts exercising. He starts honing his skill, right? That's me. He starts shaping his abilities. Are you following me? The reality is this. You have almighty God within you. And it's time to start using that ability, working that strength, exercising this godliness. He's given you all you need. You have the super strength of the Holy Spirit inside of you. But will we avail ourselves? Will we take this calling seriously? Will we pony up, so to speak, to the incredible responsibility that we have to the godliness that God has given you all that you need for? You following this? It's a big step. And then finally, point E on the back of your page, we see that he's made you partakers in God's divine nature. Now, you remember how we define this, right? We're not saying that you become God. What are we saying? That his holiness and his righteousness and his separation from sin is given opportunity to you, that you can be partakers in that set-apart living. That's powerful. And then he says in Ephesians 5.1, he describes it a little bit more by saying, therefore be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He'll list in Ephesians 1 all the things that are opposite of God's divine nature. And he'll realize that, you know what? You have all that you need to live in the character and imitation of God's pure, holy living. And then finally, he promises that you can escape the corruption of the world. And I hope that this is water to your tired, weary soul this morning. Have you seen any corruption around you? Have you seen any frustration? Have you sensed, this is personal, have you sensed the emptiness in your own life when you indulge in sin? Titus 2 Titus 2, we'll wrap up with this. Titus 2, verses 11 through 15 describe this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness 
and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Do you feel the ugh of sin? Do you know that feeling of feeling useless, feeling dirty, feeling beaten down? You can have victory. God is offering you deliverance from that. He's offering you purity, sanctification. He's offering you hope, joy, peace. He's offering you abundant life if we simply buy into the reality that his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Are you seeing the message? Let's pray that this will be true of our lives. Let's pray that we'll add to this practicing the moment-by-moment presence of the Lord Jesus. We will add the conviction to live this godly life that he's called us to. I'm excited because 2 Peter continues on. They're going to give you all kinds of steps. They're going to give you the how-to. They're going to tell you what to add to A, B, C, and D. But the reality is this. I need a heart change. I need a shift in mindset. I need to stop being content and satisfied with lukewarm living, and I need to achieve and strive through God's power the unbelievable calling of godliness that he's laid out. Are you ready? Father, we leave this to you. We trust you. We thank you. We know that there's no shot at doing this without you working, and yet you've promised You've promised to draw us in our desire and you've promised to draw us in our action. Father, allow us to get out of the way, please. Allow us to humble ourselves. Allow us to sacrifice our own selfishness and accept your lordship in our lives, to accept the work of Almighty God working through us. Father, I'm excited. What could this city look like if these 150 people were shining bright for you. Who else would see the escape from the sinful world and want a taste of this divine nature that you offer? Father, you could do amazing things through us and in us, and you could use us, Lord, to be salt and light and to show our city and our world that they need Jesus. Father, this is the time we ask that you touch each one of our hearts. We're excited to move forward in your love, in your provision. Thank you for this life and godliness you've provided for us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.